So, on to the message. So, this morning you get to do old school. We have no slides. All right, Zach's in Colorado. Margaret was in Wenatchee, and a certain pastor didn't get slides to Margaret in time so she could get them done. All right, so you get to go old school and you get to look in your Bibles. How's that? So, we're going to do that together this morning. We're going to be talking about something that I think we do really well already. One of the things I think we do well as a church is serve and serve other people. And we're going to talk about um, this because we're working at step-by-step at, uh, step and we're coming into the weekend. It's now six days away. We've been doing a thank offering last Sunday and this Sunday, and we've been really gracious as a church. But we want to just look at it uh, in terms of uh, calling it the fine art of serving. All right? And so let's pray before we do that. Lord, um, you, if you've, you've taught us many things. But if you've taught us one thing, well, it's how we are to serve one another. And that, that's kind of a hallmark a signature imprint of your church. And Lord, sometimes we do that really well. Sometimes we don't do it so well because our egos get in the way and we get selfish. But um, we uh, are delighted to be able to serve others who can't give anything back to us. And we pray you'd teach us uh, lessons about you that we'd never know uh, because we've done this. <coughs> we pray that you'd give us a spirit of teamwork, that you would give us a spirit of unity, that you would give us um, quick hands and willing hearts to, to serve others who uh, um, are going to be coming this, this coming weekend. So we ask that you protect us from the warfare and that you would not allow the enemy to, to pick at us or to uh, cause uh, disruption within the camp. And we ask that uh, we would represent you well uh, with smiles and right hearts when people come on Saturday. So we give that to you with hope as we talk this morning about what you do better than we do, and that's serving. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So I want to start this morning. I'm going to uh, quote you a verse out of First Peter. You don't need to turn there because it's not the major passage. But First Peter says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in all its various forms. And I think that's just a great, you know, right? There's a lot of different ways God's grace erupts out in a body and a lot of different ways to serve. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same personality. But there's lots of stuff we can all do together. And so Peter here is encouraging the church he's writing to. He says, use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You know, we've, we just walked into now the holiday season. And I don't know about you, but... I, I was flabbergasted uh, how fast Thanksgiving ended and Christmas started. I mean, like in one night, my neighborhood went electric, right? Is that true in yours? Like the lights were up and trees were up and we're driving by going, wow, look at all the trees decorated. I'm like, wow, how did that happen so fast? I'm like, wasn't, I wasn't ready for that transformation. I'm still old school, right? You do Thanksgiving and then you shift into, so I, I guess I got to adjust, but um, you know, the holiday season, when you think about it, it, even in our culture, it's known as a season of giving, right? Gifts and giving and, and that kind of thing. Uh, now, there's, certainly there's the, there's the corporate, individual greed, right? Get side, right? And all the Hallmark shows go off of that theme, right? Somebody's grabbing something they shouldn't grab, and then they repent, and they turn into wonderful, nice people in Hallmark, Right? All without Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And um, I'm being funny there. Sorry. First service didn't get it either. Okay, so we're good. You'll wake up after lunch. And um, 
But, but really, the, the tone of it or the, the thought of it is this, this spirit of giving. And uh, especially the, in terms of those who are less fortunate. In six days, we're going to be hosting step by step, as, as you heard already this morning. And uh, what step by step, we're just a small part of step by step. We are helping them facilitate what they do around the year uh, with, these, with these families. And particularly what, who they minister to is single moms. And if you think about who the um, people who have a struggle in our culture, it's, it's single moms. Uh, I was talking in first service about how much I depend on Pam uh, as a team as we run our family. My wife works very hard. She buries me in many ways and does a great job. And I try to think of if she wasn't there, what would I do? How would I pull off? the stuff I have to do. And it would be monstrous trying to do it. And a single mom has to do that every day. There is no husband to consult. If, he's, if there's any guy around, usually he's not a nice guy, right? You wouldn't want to consult him anyways. Um, she's trying to figure out how to raise these kids, how to keep these kids out of trouble, how to help these kids, how to point them in the right direction. And she herself doesn't know that. You know, a lot of gals who are in that situation come out of rough backgrounds they've been sinned against as well. So it's just an an, uh, overwhelming kind of responsibility. And that's what we're trying to do is come alongside and uh, help them. And we've uh, set last Sunday and this Sunday aside as a thank offering. And uh, you're going, what's a thank offering? And I want to show you the, the history of the thank offering so you understand that it... That isn't just pulled out of a hat or out of thin air. So, uh, because one of the thoughts is, you know, why are we doing this? Or, you know, maybe even a little jaded piece inside somewhere deeper. Do I really have to? Right? And you could be sitting there saying, boy, you know, I got enough strain with the holidays. I, I have enough emotional wallet time pressure just trying to think of and take care of uh, my own family, let alone these other people who I don't even know and I probably will never see again. Why, why would I even consider doing that? So let's take a quick look at the history of that. Now you can take your Bibles. Turn into your favorite holiday book of the season, the book of Leviticus. I know you all love having your quiet times there. And uh, in Leviticus, we're going to be looking at chapter 7. I want to show you the background or the history of the thank offering. So in Leviticus, that's a kind of, most people consider it pretty dry. And most people... Um, try to skip it most of the time when it's that book to read through their portion of the Bible. They try to either skip it or read through really fast and go, uh, la, 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 and I'll get done with it. But there's all, that's, all the offerings are in there, right? All the ceremonial things that the Jewish people had to do. And, and a lot of us, that's just like chewing on dry chalk dust. But one of the uh, offerings in there was the thank offering. And I want us to look at that uh, this morning. It says, in uh, starting with verse 11, and this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offering. If you have NIV, it says the thank offering. All right, so thank offering, peace offering, same, same deal. That one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice. Then it goes on to list all the things 
that it's supposed to list. But what you'd find if you read, there's four different places in Leviticus where it talks about the thank offering. The thank offering was different in the other ones, and the other ones were all prescribed. There was a date on the calendar. There was a time of the day. There was uh, what you brought exactly. But in the thank offering, it was different. It says if anyone felt compelled in their heart, they just wanted to thank God. They just wanted to, uh, God had been good to them. Or they were just, even if things weren't good, they were grateful for God and grateful for what he had done for them anyways. And they, wanted, they, they just felt compelled to give an offering. It was called the thank offering or the peace offering. And so uh, the Bible's expositor commentary says this, it was given entirely spontaneously, offered as the occasion should arise from the feelings of the sacrificer, i.e. the person who was grateful or thankful for what God had done or for God himself and wanted to say thank you. And so this was uh, an, an offering of generousness and this was an offering of gratitude uh, that could a uh, person just wanted to bless God. That was the thank offering. This idea moved forward as a nation then where we find in history it moved forward and there's a lot we could say about it, but it showed up for us in 1621, right, with what the group we called the Pilgrims. And they had a... Uh, Thanksgiving banquet, the first one, and it was to thank the Lord for getting them across the Atlantic Ocean, which today is very tame by uh, most of our standards, but back in that day, that was a life-threatening adventure that you might not even make it across the ocean, let alone make it to the New World. So uh, they were grateful they had made it across. They were also grateful for a a bounty harvest, and so uh, we commemorate that as uh, the first Thanksgiving. And then... The idea moved forward as a nation where our first president, uh, George Washington, set it aside as a day, a a national uh, day of thanksgiving. And this was done in November 26, 1789. Right? And here's what George Washington said about thanksgiving in 1789. He said this, that it should be set apart as a day of, and here's his exact words, as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and singular favors of Almighty God. Oh, that we had a president that talked like that today, huh? We could recapture some of that old, that's some pretty good stuff right there. As a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and singular favors of Almighty God. Uh, That's a fabulous statement. So that's how we came upon Thanksgiving. So this Thursday, when we all sat down as families together and uh, ate our turkey and our pies and did all that stuff together, we were really thanking the Lord for being gracious and bounteous to us as a country. Well, you know, that, the God part can get pretty easily dropped out, right? Mm. Kind of get left behind and, and not there at all. And I want to bring us back to where that whole idea really comes from. In the New Testament, it comes from Jesus himself. If you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. And while you're turning there, let me just give you the backdrop to this. The backdrop to this story is that they're going along the road. And while they're going along the road, the disciples are arguing, discussing, if you will, uh, who's the greatest among them. And so some envy, some testosterone is kicking in. They're all guys. 
and they're kind of jockeying elbows with one another and they're giving reasons why they're better than the one another and why Jesus should pick them to lead the group because there was a great deal of anticipation that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom and then they would get picked for favored roles within that kingdom. And the question was, hey, who's the top dog? Not good enough just to be in the pack. Who's the top dog? And so they're arguing about this. And so in Luke 22, starting with verse 24, it says this, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says, hey, when you go to a meal, it's the people sitting at the banquet that are the, 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 the higher rank, right? The servants don't sit at the table. The servants bring the people sitting at the table their food. We would know this today as a restaurant. When you go to a restaurant, you don't go in the kitchen, have the people who work in the restaurant sit at your table and you serve them food. No, they serve you food, right? And Jesus is saying, but I've come, the one who should be sitting at the table, I come as one who's come to serve you. And therefore, you should respond the same way as I am, and i.e., you should serve others the way that I have served you. He's telling the disciples this, and obviously that's a picture for us that carries over uh, as well. I want you to take your Bibles again and turn to Luke 10. So just go a couple chapters earlier. Luke 10. And uh, a very famous story, and, and you know this story well. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, those of us who are kids and have been in Sunday school, my buddy Taylor here could probably come up and recite it from memory, right? I won't make you do that, Taylor. All right, that's cool. And uh, But let's read it again, and we're going to pull some uh, points out of here this morning. So starting with verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So this is a group of people that are testing Jesus. In other words, they're not just listening to what they're saying, but they're trying to find fault. Have you ever said to somebody, hey, this is what happened? They go, no, that's not what happened. Or this is the time. No, that wasn't the time, right? They're being really exacting with you and it's got to be precisely on the button and they're finding fault with what you're saying. That's what they're doing with Jesus, okay? They're they're finding issue. They're trying to pick apart what he's saying. It says, so behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what? is written in the law. This is Jesus. He said, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then it says this, but he desiring to justify himself. In other words, something was still missing. He had the right Sunday school answer. He could pop it right off the top of his head. Jesus says, how do you read it? I doubt that he had a scroll there or the Torah there. He knew it from being in synagogue all his life. He popped off Deuteronomy chapter 6 and just boom, rolled it. Okay? And Jesus says, good, we'll go do that and you're fine. But something was bugging him. 
it wasn't quite right inside. And so he's wrestling with it. And it says, wishing to justify himself. He knew something wasn't quite right. So he says he's asked this question. Okay, well, that's fine, Jesus. That's a good, thanks for the comeback question. Now, who's my neighbor? Define for me who my neighbor is. And once you define for me who my neighbor is, I'll go do what you've asked me to do. And Jesus, as so often he did, replied with a story. And here's how the story goes. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Think downtown Seattle where somebody gets mugged. Okay, Not very pretty, blood on the sidewalks, it's a mess, and the guy's left laying there. We kind of know how that works in our culture. And so he was a beat up, bloody mess. And they said they departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by the other side. I.e., these are people who knew the law. These were people who knew what the man had just recited as how do you read the commandments that Jesus and this lawyer were having this discussion about. Right? They knew what it said. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So he uses this parable to have a dialogue with this lawyer. Lawyers know how to parse things apart. And so he used the story to illustrate how he should respond. And let me pull just a couple quick things out of this that I'm sure you already know, but they're good reminders anyways. And sometimes the best things we need to learn are the things we already know and be reminded of them. So here's a couple things from that. First of all, notice that the need was obvious. The guy was laying there. In other words, it was in front. This was a well-traveled world. People were apparently going up and down it. And everybody who passed by saw him. Matter of fact, it says the priest saw it. It was so obvious he saw it. He went to the other side of the road, walked down, and went by. All right? So he probably wouldn't get defiled in his mind, I would guess. That was what he was thinking. And, but it was observable. It was right there. What's observable in your world? Who's your neighbor in your world? Who, what's there? Okay? In terms of what you bump in. Like, like students, what, who, at school, what needs are there? Or at work, right? Or within your neighborhood or that kind of stuff. What are the observable needs of the people that live around you. Second, meeting the need took time, money, and compassion. Right? It didn't just happen. The priest didn't walk by and say, be healed. And the guy got up and said, thank you. And off they went. Right? It, it took time. Notice that when the Samaritan came, uh, he had to stop whatever he was doing. Apparently he was on a journey because when he gave money to the innkeeper, he said, hey, when I come back, spend whatever you need to on this guy. And when I come back, I'll, I'll cover whatever extra it took. So obviously the guy was on a journey somewhere. He had some business to take care of. We don't know what. It never tells us. But he he didn't have all the time in the day. He didn't have uh, 
leisurely time. He had a busy schedule. He had something to get done, usually on business trips. You've got to get there. And all of a sudden, there's this interruption. And he, the priest and the Levite, the religious people, said, I don't have time to be interrupted. The Samaritan was kind of a mixed, you know, half-breed kind of person, uh, stops and actually has compassion on the guy and says that, what did he do? He, he poured oil and, and wine on his wounds. He ba- basically bound him up, put him on his own animal, and then took him to an inn. Now, the inn was not right there, right? There was not a comfort inn right on the curb that he took him to. He probably had to take him somewhere. He was probably between towns or whatever. So he had to disrupt his own journey, take this guy to where an inn was, get him in the inn, get him set up. Once he was set up, he gave the money to the innkeeper and then said, hey, I'll cover when I come back. And then it took money, right? It it wasn't just, hey, can I pray with you? He actually had to expend some of his money to have this guy taken care of. It wasn't convenient. It It was a messy situation. Matter of fact, other people saw the messy situation and said, I don't want to deal with that. I'll go across the street. I won't even be bothered by it. Where the Samaritan said, hey, um, I'll help. Interesting backplay on this of Jesus using a Samaritan because the Samaritans were called dogs by the Jews. Right? They were considered half-breeds or illegitimate children of faith uh, because they were uh, this... the. The leftover remnant that was meshed with Assyria and all that kind of stuff, and they they weren't pure Jews, and so the the Jews called them dogs. And Jesus himself was called what? We know that you are the Pharisees said a Samaritan. What they were really saying uh, to Jesus is that you are a bastard child, right? We know that your mom was pregnant before your dad married her, and you're not really who you claim to be. You are really not one of us. You are not pure. And therefore, you're a Samaritan. That's what they were really saying to him when they called him a Samaritan. So it's interesting in this story, Jesus takes that group of people and uses them in the story as the, the hero. Right? And you can imagine, if you were a Jewish person, listen, how distasteful that would be. All right? That, it just has that context to it. So... The meeting the need took time, it took money, and it took compassion. Notice the guy could have dumped him at the end and said, Hey, I found this guy on the road. I don't know who he is. Uh, I've done the best I could. You know, look, you deal with him. He didn't have that. He had compassion. He said, Look, take care of him. And if there's anything extra, when I come back, I'll cover the cost. Right? He had, he had a heart for the guy. So when it comes to serving... Number one, we need to look for obvious needs. Number two, we need to look for time, money, and compassion. And then it doesn't end when he left. He had to come back and check on the guy later. And interesting, we don't know the rest of the story, how it turned out, or how Jesus would have turned it out when he came back. But it didn't end when he left. You know, when you think of obvious needs in America and you drive around, it's not that much because a lot's hidden. Right? Like if you drive through Mill Creek, it looks like everybody lives in a mansion and everybody drives really nice cars and everybody has really nice yards and everybody has really nice kids and everybody has really nice furniture and there are no needs and there are no problems and um, there's nothing obvious wrong with Mill Creek. And on the surface, that could be true. But if you look a little deeper, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of those homes that aren't homes. 
A lot of those buildings are just buildings, houses. There's not really a family that lives within them. The family's been all busted up. And one of the groups that uh, gets beat up uh, in our culture, like the person in this passage, is uh, single moms. Okay? They, they, they have no future. They have no earning potential. Uh, they usually come out of a bad situation. They fall into a worse situation. They have kids. They decide to keep the kids. And nine times out of ten, when they decide to keep the kid, the guy takes off. Okay, how would you like to be in that predicament? What's your future? What do you got? They really are the widows and orphans of our culture. They are the observable problem that we have in our culture. And a lot of people don't want to work with them. Why? Because they're messy. It's not a perfect situation. It's not the best setup. Um, and step-by-step step takes these gals under their wings and they teach them life skills and they teach them health skills and they teach them career skills and education courses and how to get there. They teach them how to line their kids up right. And, um, and they teach them about the Lord. And a lot of these women have very, very redemptive experiences with step-by-step. Step. So uh, when we come alongside step-by-step, step, what we're doing is providing something for these single moms they probably other, wouldn't otherwise have. Those of us who are nuclear families and, and understand that, when we come to the holidays, you know, we're worried about how we're going to get gifts for our kids, right? Can you imagine being a single mom? How do you get gifts for your kids? It's a completely different question. They don't even have the ability to do that. So for many of these moms, we're providing a meal and family portraits and uh, gifts uh, and food and stuff that they otherwise they wouldn't even have anything. And I think that um, in that way we really bless bless the Lord's Lord's heart that way. I want to give you a, a, a story. Oh, by the way, uh, in your bulletins, if you take out the uh, from the thank offering. I, I forgot this part, but you, you'll find an envelope like this. This is for if you want to give some cash for being able to buy the gift cards that go in the grocery bag. Put that in the envelope here. Put it in one of the drop boxes by the doors, and we'll put that towards that um, for Saturday. I found an article in uh, Christian History. And I don't even know who wrote it. I can't find the author, so I want to give credit, and I can't give credit to, but it's in Christian history, and they were talking about the early church. What made the early church stand out, or why did it have such a powerful influence in the Roman culture in the first 300 years, even though it was a persecuted group of people and um, was, was a, a small minority in the culture? What, was, what created the effect that we now know as the early church? And it, it says this, it says that no other time in the history of Christianity did, did love so characterize the entire church as it did in the first three centuries. The Roman society took notice. Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how they love one another. In other words, it was that observable. They didn't like them. They thought they were a stupid group and they worshipped their own God, but wow, look at how they love each other. Isn't that amazing? Justin Martyr sketched Christian love this way. We, who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Isn't that amazing? 
Clement, describing the person who has come to know God, wrote, He impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows that he can bear the poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain, and if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. In other words, what uh, Clement was saying is, as a Christian, you can see somebody who's in poverty, and you might be in poverty too, but you know you can handle poverty better because you've got the Holy Spirit, so you give to the other person because you know they can't handle it as well as you do. And in the process of doing that, you don't complain. All right? You, you don't complain. We're going to look at that a little bit farther uh, in, the, in the message here. But there are a couple other things they point out in this article. I won't read the whole thing to you, but it says, um, it said this about the early Christians. When a devastating plague swept across the ancient world in the third century, and you can read about that, Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick, which is, you know, if you think about one of the telltale signature marks of Christianity in the culture is the fact that wherever Christianity goes, uh, hospitals and clinics and care centers pop up all over the place and they take care of the people. And that's still going on today. Many of you have been on mission trips where you brought medical care to groups of people that didn't have medical care. Okay? Uh, Doctors Without Borders is a wonderful a group that does a lot of that stuff. It says, which they did at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, pagans were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets even before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. In other words, who was taking care of people? You come along and like the Samaritan, here's people lying in the street. Why were they lying in the street? Because they had the plague. So they threw them out in the street even before they were dead because the other people in the home didn't want to pick up the disease and who picked them up and who, who took care of them? It was the Christians who took care of them. I.e., Mother Teresa got her idea from somewhere. All right? That wasn't a brand new idea. That was what made the church stand out uh, in, the early, in the early church. Um, there's more in this article, but let me just read this part here. It says, The love of the early Christians wasn't limited simply to their fellow believers. Christians also lovingly helped non-believers, the poor, orphans, the elderly, the sick, the shipwrecked, which in their culture that was a big thing because they lived on the Mediterranean, even their persecutors. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The early Christians accepted this statement as a command from the Lord rather than as an ideal that couldn't actually be practiced in real life. Latanius wrote, if we all derive our origin from one man whom God created, we are plainly all of one family. Therefore, it must be considered an abomination to hate another human, no matter how guilty he may be. For this reason, God has decreed that we should hate no one, but that we should eliminate hatred, so we can comfort our enemies by reminding them of our mutual relationship. For if we have all been given life from the same God, what else are we but brothers? Because we are all brothers, God teaches us never to do evil to one another, but only good, giving aid to those who are oppressed and experiencing hardship for giving and giving food to the hungry. It goes on to, at the end, it says, No wonder that Christianity spread rapidly through the ancient world, even though there were few organized missionary or evangelism programs. The love they practiced drew the attention of the world, just as Jesus said that it would. I thought that was an amazing commentary on the on the early church and i think that if you're asking um 
what can make the church stand out in the culture today? The same thing. Serving others. Sacrificial generosity. Serving others uh, not because we have to. Serving others because we get to. And that we understand that even if we give away material possessions, we are not poor because we're rich in Christ. And therefore, we can handle the poverty better than they can. Now, that sounds good, but there's a human part of us that says, yeah, but what if? Or but, right? And there's the part of, is it a fair system? How do I get ahead then? If I'm serving, how do I get ahead, right? There's that part of us, I need to win, right? We're Americans, I got to get ahead, right? How do I do that? Um, And I want to take you to Philippians chapter 2. And it's a passage um, that Paul is talking about. And it's using a different illustration. So we've talked about the thank offering. Paul is now talking about another one that's different called the, the drink offering. All right, let me read it to you. We're starting at verse 12 in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more when my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we know that part of it well, right? We've heard that, we've recited that. Uh, kids, you memorize that in Awana or Sunday school. Uh, so we know that, those verses, they're pretty familiar to us. But here, the, Paul uses that to set up this. Here's what he writes next. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oops. How many things? 60% of things do without grumbling or disputing, or 75%, or 85%, or 92.7%. Uh, it says what? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that the day of Christ, that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. In other words, he's telling the Philippian church, look, I want you to be this kind of church. I want you to be these kind of people. And I want you to serve sacrificially. And in the process of serving sacrificially, don't grumble or complain. Because he says, I want to have confidence that I didn't labor or run in vain in regards to my work to you. But then he says this. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now we can skip past that because it doesn't make sense to us, but I want to explain that little verse here to us where it says, um, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. The drink offering was, if you go back into the... uh, the offerings in the, the Torah and the law, one, one of them was the drink offering. And the drink offering was uh, the best wine was poured into a cup and then nobody drank it. It was poured out. It was either poured out on a rock or it was poured out on the altar. All right? And it was called the drink offering, i.e. the symbolism there is nobody got to benefit from the best wine. It got poured out. It, it didn't get used for what it was uh, to be used for. And the idea there is that that was given uh, to God. Only God could see that it was poured out and what that was supposed to be for. You couldn't 
you couldn't see it. And Paul says, you know what? I'm not really sure all of what I've done in the Philippian church. And I hope I haven't run in vain. And I hope I haven't labored for nothing. I hope there's faith that's going to spurt out of that church. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, what's Paul saying? Even if nothing comes from it, I will rejoice and give thanks. See, and at this point, this is where we get caught, not so much in what we're doing. So, for example, when we do this event on Saturday, we will be doing the right thing. I don't think anybody would, would contest that. The bigger question is not what we're doing, but why we're doing what we're doing. Right? It's the motive. It's the issue behind why we're doing what we're doing. And that's what Paul's getting at here in this Philippians passage about the drink offering and the motive. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you always. What happens when things don't go the way you thought they were supposed to go? What happens when events happen that you say it's not fair? What happens when you serve someone and they don't appreciate it? Okay. What's our normal human tendency? Well, if you go back up and you, you look, Right here, if you look at uh, verse 14, what does it say? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Isn't it easy to grumble? I said, they're dirty, right? I did that for, see if I ever do that. What's the right? Stick it in their beak. You ever grumbled under your breath that way? Right? Lousy sassafras. I had the other mic because this one went, and it really worked good in, in the other mic because you could mumble well and everybody could hear you. Um, but do you ever grumble? It's not fair. Or, or they didn't even appreciate what I did. And then that comes down to not are you serving, but why are you serving? What was your expectation in serving? And much of it, like the disciples, we argue about who's the top dog in the pack. I can outserve you, Roger. Oh, no, you can't, Mitch. I can outserve you. I'd, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you. Right? When we jostle for, as guys, right? Get that testosterone thing. I can outserve you. And, and then we are like the disciples arguing who's the greatest. Who's, who's the bigger dog? Who's got the better fire hydrant? All right? And mark our territory. I can outserve you. And what, you, what characterizes how you know where the flesh gets in on that, what's a telltale sign? It's what? Grumbling and disputing. Arguing. Right? We, we complain because we're not happy. Because I serve because I expected this to happen. What is this? It could be all kinds of things, right? I want a pat on the back. Wow, way to go, St. Steve. You are such a servant. We are awed by your saintliness and servantness, right? Or I wanted uh, to get ahead. Uh, this was a way to get ahead in my job. You know, some of us go to work and say, hey, I'll do the jobs that nobody else wants to do, and then my boss will recognize it, and then I will get ahead for that. And then we don't get promoted. Somebody else gets promoted above us. Or... Um, Wives, you ever do this? You do something special for your husband. You set the thing up and you put the whole deal in. You're just going to bless him. He comes home and then he doesn't even notice what you did. Okay? Is it easy to have a thankful heart? That lout. Right? That cretin. See if I ever do that for him again. Right? We have this tendency to grumble and complain when it doesn't go the way we want to go. And that could be true on Saturday. Does, is everybody that's coming on Saturday going to have a pure motive? No. 
Could some people be here to, to work the system? Yeah. Um, are there going to be some messy things? Yeah. Will it all turn out the way we think? Maybe not. That's not why we're doing it. We're not doing it to get a pat on the back. We're doing it so that people can see our love for Jesus and that they will come away going, wow, there's something about what went on there that is very different from what I experience in my world. And we hope that they meet the resurrected Christ. We hope that they... My goal for Saturday is very simple. I hope that as we function as a team, we are blessing God, and as we have sacrificially... uh, as we've expressed sacrificial generosity towards a group of people we don't even know, they'll walk in this building and say, I don't know what it was about that place, but I actually felt the love of God. That was amazing. What was going on in there? And the idea of, hey, maybe I should go back. Maybe that group, I wonder if that group would let me come and join them. I wonder if I could go to church there. Wouldn't that be an amazing deal? And so we're not doing to get something out of it. Because if you're doing it to get something out of it, we then have a tendency to grumble and complain. It should be obedience, but it should be obedience with joy. Right? It should be obedience with joy. We get to. We don't have to. We get to. Boy, when you get the Christian life and it's a get to, it changes everything. Because now you don't have to get something out of it. You get to. I get to do that. Jesus did that for me. I get to do this for him. Wow. Awesome. Very cool. The other idea behind the, the drink offering was that you do it as unto the Lord, even if nobody sees it. The hardest thing to do is to get kids to learn to do their chores even when you're not there, right? Those of you who've been parents... And an even harder thing is to get your kids to do their chores with joy, even if you're not there. Most of the time, you cannot get them to do it with joy, even if you are there. Matter of fact, your being there wrecks their joy, right? Because you can observe whether they did it or not. And they, otherwise, they can come to you and say, well, I did it. And what's our first question? You sure? That was awfully fast, right? Is it done? Um, did you brush your teeth well? Uh-huh. Well, how did it only take two seconds? I don't get what, you know, what do you have, a nuclear toothbrush or what? Um, so we know how that works in real life, right, with our kids. Well, this idea is the idea of the thank offering is that we operate sacrificially as unto the Lord, even if nobody else sees it. By the way, some of your best stuff is probably hidden and nobody sees it. And you're wondering why you don't get your reward. Margaret uh, uh, is our admin upstairs, Margaret Smith. And she has a little sticker on her desk. And if you ever go up there, you can take a look at it. But it says, uh, your reward is here. And then above it, there's a little word not with an arrow pointing. So it actually reads, your reward is not here. Right? And it's really true. We forget sometimes and we see everybody else winning down here. And we think, I've got to enter that fight and I've got to win down here. And we start running with the ponies thinking, okay, I'll do whatever it takes to win down here. And we forget our reward is not down here. It doesn't come from here. This stuff won't satisfy. Our reward comes from the Lord. And he's the one who sees not only what we've done, but why we've done what we've done. And that's what he rewards. And so the hope is coming this Saturday. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. 
get ready for leading us in worship. But the hope is this Saturday is that we will serve sacrificially. We already have. You've, as Pam said, you've already given. Uh, we've been hauling toys and food all week. By the way, if you had intentions to do that and haven't done it, like my wife said, do it this week. If you're going to make a Costco run, you're going to make a Winco run, a Safeway run or something, you take a look and purchase some extra items and just throw them in the boxes out there in the lobby. We'll be here during the week. Just do it. You're not too late. There, there will never be too much food. There will never be too much toys. There will never be too much money. All right? Uh, we will use all and everything that you bring and give. But as a, a body, we get to do this corporately. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines and looking and going, ah, I don't think I'm going to do that thing. It, it makes me feel uncomfortable. That's exactly why you should do it. Right? We need table hosts. And you're saying, oh, I don't want to be a table host. I don't even know how to speak Spanish. That's exactly why you should do it. Because in the process of the serving, you will be blessed. Jesus said, and by the way, we don't have this recorded anywhere in the Gospels. It comes from Paul. And Paul wrote about it after his vision of seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ in heaven. He said that Jesus' own words, it's better to give than to receive. And one of the things you learn in the Christian life is when you give away, that's when you get blessed. It's not when you give. And so we get a chance to give away this Saturday. And I want us to do it with gusto, with joy, with sacrificial heart that blesses people to the point where they literally experience the love of God among us as a group of people. And I guarantee if that happens, we will sense his pleasure too. And we will be happy with that. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, aim towards this, a couple things. Number one, please protect from the warfare, protect our body from disputing and grumbling and Satan nipping at our flanks and heels and that kind of stuff. Second thing, protect the people who are coming. They may encounter all kinds of warfare. You shouldn't go to that church. You shouldn't do that. They're out to get something, yada, yada, yada. Protect everybody from your enemy, Father. But then, Lord, give us, give us right hearts. Teach us how to be sacrificial like you. Teach us how to serve like you. Lord, we've come a long way as a, a body. We've done some great things that way, but we could go farther. What's your vision for how we could serve in the Mill Creek area? Help us find the observable reality that we can do. May this be a good beginning entry point. Most of these people live right in this area here. Father, third, may we do it with a right heart. May you give us right motives. May you purify this week, flush out things that shouldn't be there in our spirit, flush the arguments and ideas, and just make it ring true. Lord, we pray that people will literally be able to sense your love and the love of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for that in your name.